This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Field Guides. Our friends at Field Guides have led birding tours around the world since 1985. Their friendly expert leaders have joined together to create a new video series. Outbirding with Field Guides is all things birds, adventure, conversations with interesting bird people, ornithology, tales of discovery, cooking in the field even. Now, even when you're home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Visit outbirding.com slash ABA to check those videos out and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. A few weeks ago, you might remember a conversation I had with Tyke James about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. We talked about why it's important and the potential threat to the interpretation of that law in the United States from the current administration. If you haven't been paying attention beyond that interview, you're probably wondering what became of all that. Um, Tyke talked a bit about the role that the courts play in deciding whether these laws get changed and the importance of birder input in the form of commenting on these rule changes during the mandated comment period. And it seems like that worked, for now at least, as Judge Valerie Caproni, a district judge on the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, district a lot there, struck down that memorandum put forward by the current administration. You might remember that it, in short, basically said that intent matters when it comes to the application of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. If you didn't mean to break the act, then you shouldn't be punished under the act. That was the argument that the administration was making. Justice Caproni said, nah. She cited the Harper Lee book, To Kill a Mockingbird, which, a little on the nose, Your Honor, but, you know, we'll take it. I'm not a lawyer by any means. I, I read some law blog breakdowns of what went what went on here. Uh, Justice Caproni basically made the argument that because this was a really substantive change to longstanding agency positions backed by more than 40 years of department interpretation and enforcement, that you can't you can't just up and change them. In such a huge way. Basically, and, and this is, again, from me, a person that does not even watch law procedurals on TV, uh, this was too much too fast. Uh, she said that if you want to change this, you need Congress to do it. Oh, and by the way, stop asking the courts to do Congress's job. So, impacts. Perhaps this could conceivably be appealed to the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. I suspect that that would not be a friendly court for this interpretation, for the inter for the administration's interpretation. And even so, I, it's hard to say whether that would even happen uh, in time for before a potential new administration takes over. So the timeline's sort of uncertain. Uh, one downside from all this, though, is that there is sort of increased uncertainty regarding liability. How that breaks down for future decisions is not clear. Maybe, maybe that was the point. Maybe this was just another whole poked in the MBTA, in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, that certain interests want to eventually become a tear after a while. You poke enough holes, the integrity gets weakened enough that you can go right through it. We certainly have to stay vigilant, uh, we as birders and conservationists, because undoubtedly, as Taiki and I talked about, this is the sort of thing that comes up every once in a while. We always have to be aware and swat it aside. 
That said, you would be justified as seeing this as a win. This effort was turned away, in part thanks to the efforts of birders. I do think that those comments work, as Taiki said. Uh, I do think it's worth putting your name on the record that way, uh, thanks to those of you who did, both individually and as organizations. On the show this week, I'm going to give you some advice for fall birding. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. I'm not going to assume, but I think we can all be better pishers. I'm going to teach you the Swick method, the way of the pish, to better pish off your local birds. That is towards the end of the show. But first, school's back in session, sort of. Steve McGuire is a high school ornithology teacher. What does that mean? Why is that important? Why should we be teaching kids about birds as early as we can get them? He is with me to talk about his experiences in the classroom after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second week of September 2020. We've had some fascinating and a little anxiety-inducing weather patterns here in North America in the last week. The entire West on fire. There are currently five named storm systems in the Atlantic Basin, and the birds are... Well, they're moving, but into and out of what I can't imagine. But fall is here. The rare bird wire is definitely starting to heat up. We'll start with good birds for the ABA area, and that story begins as usual this year in Arizona, where a young northern Chicana or Hassana or any combination of those six syllables you like was seen in Pima near Tucson. Most records of this long-legged lily trotter in the ABA area come from South Texas, but there are a small handful of Arizona records as well. It's showing very well for birders who are going to see it. In Vermont, a common ringed plover was seen near Swanton that represents a first record for that state of a species that is not unheard of in New England, but Vermont is not known for its shorebirds, so that makes it a little more exciting. And up in Alaska, we don't have birders on the traditional vagrant-rich sites like St. Paul Island and Gamble this year, sadly. But there are birds turning up in places where there are birders, including Unalaska and the Central Aleutians, where a pair of gray-streaked flycatchers were seen this week. And up in New Jersey, a little stint. Nice find at Forsyth National Wildlife Refuge, though it is getting on the late side for that species to show up in North America. Those are the highlights for the week. As always, for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert, written by yours truly, every Friday morning at aba.org rba. You can also go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com groups slash aba rare, or follow us on Twitter at aba bird alert. Most people perceive ornithology as a college course, one of those science electives that people take that sometimes gets them into this bird thing long term. But what if we brought it down to high school, appealed to more students from more backgrounds and sent them down this path earlier? That is the goal of my guest, Stephen McGuire. He's a high school science teacher in Massachusetts. He's been teaching ornithology for a few years now. He joins me to talk about it. Uh, welcome, Stephen. Thanks for your time. And I hope you're doing all right these days. Oh, yeah. Doing great, Nate. Thanks so much for having me. We were talking before we started recording. I want to break this discussion kind of into two parts, if that's all right. Sure. Uh, we'll talk about kind of how you've done this in a normal school year. And then, of course, because of the times that we're living in, uh, we'll talk about how you're accomplishing it in this sort of very, very different kind of school year. Is that that's a good deal? Yeah, that's perfect. First, you know, why ornithology in high school? And I guess second, 
how do you convince your school administrators to go along with you? Such a good question. So uh, I've been a birder my whole life. I'm 46. Uh, my dad brought me out to the bird feeders when I was a kid. I remember I was about four years old and he used mm -hmm. to, I used to help him fill the bird feeders and uh, just always got, I just got hooked as a kid. Um, I never had any formal science education until about the sixth grade, which is amazing. But I was the kid that used to cover the name of the bird and then identify the bird in a field guide by myself. Yep. Yeah. I think there's a lot of us are sort of familiar with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, like I would, that sort of I would call back and forth to the birds in my neighborhood and just totally got into it and got hooked. And I had a sixth grade science teacher named Mr. Ross, who was the first class that ever really, we did a whole birding unit. Mm -hmm. So I had always been hooked. And, you know, when I, I first started teaching where I am, uh, I had been teaching some science electives. I was teaching astronomy and I was teaching meteorology. Uh, meteorology was something that I was able to start about 15 years ago. And then seven years ago, I, I thought to myself, I've been a birder. I love it. I'm totally into it. Maybe I can get kids into it too. And I went to my administration and I found some online simple syllabi that were out there about course structure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I said, you know, astronomy and meteorology have both been pretty successful. I definitely have a natural passion for birding. You know, what do you think? And they said, let's, you know, let's throw it out there. Let's give it a shot. And my first year teaching, I ended up having I want to say we probably had two classes of maybe 20 or 25 and it was great, but I, you know, I cringe looking back on this even six, seven years ago, uh, my kids. So we birded with that many kids, no binoculars, no field scopes. We were just going on what we saw and what we heard. Yeah, that's and tough. And it was, um, <laughs> it was just wild, you know, like, and uh, since that time, you know, I'll give you the real quick numbers. I was just doing that uh, before we get started. So right now, we uh, this upcoming school year, we have uh, I have six ornithology classes uh, wow. for a total of 129 kids, um, wow. which I'm super proud of because it, you know one of the joys to me is I uh, you know I get 17 and 18 year old kids in front of me that are outside wearing binoculars, number one, they don't think it's stupid, you know, like mm -hmm. they actually are, are into it. Uh, and then I, and I warn them, I tell them in the first two or three classes, I say, you know, I have to warn you right now, some of you are going to get hooked, whether it's, whether <laughs> it's the, the little competitive edge to it that I, right. that I try to add. Uh, I just said, there's something about birding that some of you are going to get hooked and it's not going to be all of you. And, you know, I said, the majority of you are going to be along for the ride and you're going to really enjoy being outside and you're going to really love it. But there's going to be some of you that on a, on a very simple term, this is going to change your life. You've been doing this long enough. So you sort of have a sense of what kids expect when they're coming into an ornithology classroom. Like what, what is sort of their first impression of this? Do you have students that sort of know what they're getting into or people that are coming in completely, completely clean, completely with no background whatsoever? You know, I, I'm, 
terrible at a lot of things as a teacher. Like, you know, I'm that <laughs> teacher that you look around the classroom and you're like, oh my God, does this guy ever organized anything? Like I have stuff everywhere. Um, you know, I'm not really timely in feedback to kids, but you know, one, I feel like one of my skill sets as a teacher is I, I feel like I'm a pretty good communicator and mm -hmm. I build really good relationships with kids. Like that's my goal. I want them I want them to have a positive role model that can say, Hey, birding's pretty cool. Like this is, it's okay to really enjoy this. And yeah. so I think they know that every day there's going to be, they're going to be met with enthusiasm. You know, when they sign up for the course, they know that I'm a relatively enthusiastic person about what I do. So they're, they know they're going to be, have that hook, but I definitely don't think until they're in the room and we're doing and we're birding together or, you know, I had a, a great testament from a student a couple of years ago that we all went outside for the first time with binoculars and we had a, it was awesome because it was an afternoon class. So we had some great thermals and mm -hmm. we had a beautiful red tailed hawk uh, that was both calling and, you know, circling, not flapping, like totally caught on a thermal. And I get excited. I still get excited. You know, I, I, I'm, it makes me, it makes me so sad. Like I've been on birding trips with people who I've, I've been looking at, I remember as distinctly, I was looking at a red breasted merganser through a scope. And I said to the guy that total stranger, they're beautiful birds. Right. And I turned to this guy, I'm like, Hey, you want to check it out? He's like, oh, I've seen a, I've seen a bunch in my life. And, and I, I'm like, dude, like do something else. Right. So I got super fired up about this red-tailed hawk and I didn't even realize it, but it was going kind of behind the tree. So I just started jogging, like running to get a better angle. And all the kids started running behind me. And <laughs> at the end of, this was like the second day of the course. At the end of the course, this girl wrote in her course evaluation, she said, I didn't understand what everybody was so excited about. But then when I saw my 45-year-old teacher running down the street <laughs> and 25 other kids running behind him, I knew that this was going to be something different than I've ever experienced. So like to me, it's you got to get kids hooked. Uh, you got to get them excited early. You know, like I try to get out in the field as quick as we can. Uh, and that's one of the big hooks that I think is really good for them. Yeah. It feels like, and maybe this is just my sense of things over the last uh, decade or so that the, you know, just culture in general has really uh, encouraged, I don't know, kind of things that have been perceived for a very long time as maybe geeky or nerdy. Like these sort of things are more valued. Do you see kids kind of leaning into that a little bit more in the decade plus that you've been doing this, this class? Oh, a hundred percent. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost like it's so much more of a cultural norm. Yeah. They, they love it. And like I said, it's such a joy to watch kids put binoculars on and like I can sit back about, you know, maybe a month or a month and a half into the class and watch kids describing birds to each other. You know, this one has two wing bars and this one doesn't have any wing bars. And I think this is that, and I will step back and, you know, I even, obviously we're not in the same room, but I have chills even like thinking about that <laughs> because I can step back and say, all right, I got them. Like they're hooked, you know? Right, so, because right, right. when I first did this with my biology classes, I'd say maybe 15 years ago, 
and I like I, I took kids out in the field, I had to precursor it. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I had to precursor it to be like, okay, this isn't weird. Like this is okay. <laughs> right. What, the, you, this is a this is a thing you can do. Right. People do they do this. And uh and I don't have it, it's such a great point, Nate. I don't have to say that anymore. Yeah. Because um, they they love it. Yeah. So what sort of things do you do in a typical ornithology class? Awesome. So the 30-second version, I'll try to give you as quick as I can. Um, <laughs> one of the things we start with uh, to start the year, I'll kind of give you the – so each class is a semester. So that means uh, mm-hmm. the fall goes September to mid-January. The spring semester goes mid-January to May. Uh, it does go to June with the juniors, but I have a handful of juniors. I have mostly seniors in high school. And most of them have all met their science elective uh, or, mm-hmm. or their science criteria. They don't have to take this class. Um, so that's the other joy to me that they want to even take it. An yeah. o- opening class will, um, you know, I always, obviously I'm taking attendance. Uh, I have a, what every class I have what's called an attendance category. So I'm asking kids just a question. I still take roll call, which is a dinosaur thing. I was told I'm the only person <laughs> in the building that does it, but it's, it's a fun, like relationship building thing that I do. I know it sounds old school, but I love it. This is, this has worked for me that, you know, I'll do a particularly early on, we do the simple stuff of, you know, we define what a bird is and what are the four mm-hmm. or five characteristics that make it a bird. But uh, typically it'll be like some quick notes in class about any type of topic we're talking about. Everything from migration hazards to call it, I tell them, like, I warn them ahead of time about a week ahead of time. I'm like, okay. Next week, we're having a bird sex day. Like, we're going to talk about it. <laughs> like, you're 18 years old, and you got to know how they reproduce. And they all, I get the classic, like, kind of giggle, like, ha, ha, ha. But the eye rolls. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but they all, I mean, they have the questions. Like, so yeah. whatever the topic is, usually some brief notes. And then we try to get out and bird as often as we can. The other joy of this, and this is such a power to my administration of where I teach so we have uh, we have a rotating schedule, and so it, uh, it has a morning and an afternoon rotation. So if you have ornithology first period, we do something that it became a word, and I didn't even know it was going to become a word. I didn't know what else to call it. It's not really a field trip. So I've mm-hmm. so I've called these what are called off sites because we're off site of the campus. So if you have ornithology first period where I teach. We'll have what's called an offsite where the kids drive and meet me. So we're mm, we're a small right. we're a small coastal town. We have six different beaches and marshes and all these amazing birding habitats. So the kids will drive and meet me. I'll take attendance with my phone, send that get goes directly to the school portal so they know who's there, and then we bird in all these different habitats. Oh, that's nice. And and if I have an afternoon class. The kids leave school early and we do the exact same thing. So it's all right. Yeah. We started those about five years ago. Total game changer. I, yeah. I mean, obviously our species list goes up yeah. uh, because of habitat change, but just the kids, like this is the joy of they're not on a screen. They have their phones, but they don't use them. And people laugh at me when they're like, oh, are you kidding me? Kids have their phones or definitely use them. I tell my kids early on. 
this this field experience is one of the most valuable things you'll ever have in your life. You have your entire life to be on your phone. We're going to be together for 45 minutes. Stay off it. And they're so respectful to that. And so a huge portion of the courses there, we have we do one incredible field trip, which I started three years ago, which is, an, again, another game changer where we spend a full day down at the Manomet Bird um, Banding Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Right. Yeah. And um, it's unbelievable. So I'll bring my kids down for the day and they'll get a chance to hold a bird in hand, go th- yeah. go through and take the birds out of the nets. Like, th- And they all say to me, this is unbelievable. I didn't even know this was a thing. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to help out at a couple of banding stations uh, here where I live, uh, one that are run by the uh, by the state museum. But yeah, no, it, it's it's fantastic. It's it's always great to see uh, volunteers there, and especially kids. I, I have seen some high school science classes come out. It's pretty amazing to watch those kids get a bird in their hand and release that bird and and see everything that's going on. What a cool experience! Oh, it, yeah, they're floored by it. They they yeah. and the fun part is so we do the competitive piece. Like in the first week of class, first week and a half of class, I show them the big year. Um, <laughs> cause I, I want to frame that side of birding for them because mm-hmm. they all tell me that 99% of my kids tell me they had no idea that, that that was even a thing. Like, yeah. it's like, a, yeah. you know, as you got, as any birder knows, it's like a whole subculture that if you didn't, yeah, if you didn't totally. know about it, so I show them the big year, but every year when we go to Manomet, our class, our group list, whatever that class is, goes up by 20 species. Yeah, so, yeah, and, totally. and, and the buzz before we go is they're all like, what's our number going to be after Manomet? What's this going to be like? <laughs> and they're each year they're trying to break the, the previous year's record of species seen in a semester. So yeah, I'll bet. Yeah, in some ways, high school feels like a really great time for this sort of thing because students are sort of already in a mindset that they're exploring lots of different options. They're not as regimented that you might as you might be in a like a university setting where maybe only science majors would be the ones that could take advantage of this. Do you find students that come into this class not knowing much about birds, birding, ornithology, coming out of it with an interest or maybe going into science at the university level with they might not have been interested in doing something like that before? Such a good question. hundred percent. I would say I have a probably, we probably have 10 plus kids in the last five or six years that now either their career is dedicated to birding or they're doing some sort of schoolwork surrounding ecology Mm-hmm. or ornithology, a, a perfect example. So one of the things that I do on the side as you know, a teacher's salary, you have to supplement something somehow. And mm-hmm. my wife and I have four kids under 10. So uh, you know, we're paying for a lot of Busy. stuff. Yeah. Yep. So um, two years ago, I started an adult birding class in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, this fall, we're running my, the course. I you know, I have 27 people signed up. I think people are just psyched to do something outside, right? Yeah. And my yeah. co-leader in this is a graduate that I had in class two years ago. Oh, um, nice. His name's Liam. He is going to college at Suffolk University in Boston, but 
most of his stuff is online and he's going to be around. So yeah, we do it on Monday nights and, uh, you know, to answer your question. Yeah. Like there's no doubt about it. And my hope is that I've had a little bit of, uh, a part of that because of either my enthusiasm or my love for birds. And that just, that's like I said, you know, that seed got planted and mm-hmm. they're able to kind of take it from there. Yeah. You never know when that seed is going to sprout too. Like you could have a student that goes to school and study something that's not related to science. Right. But then, you know, down the road, 10 years down the road, they think back to this experience that they had and well, maybe they're interested in a hobby and this is one that they already have some experience in. And you know, you never know when it's going to come back, when that's going to manifest too. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to put it. I tell them, I, I, even those kids that don't get super hooked, I tell them, Hey, you know, maybe even someday if you're a mom or a dad and you're filling your bird feeders, you'll be able to say, oh, wow. Yeah. I know that that, that bird that's calling right now isn't an owl because it's during the day and it's a morning dove, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, I would say if there's any like light bulb moment for kids. It's when I play the call of a morning dove and they're like, that, <laughs> it's like, I've heard that so many times. I always thought that I always thought that was an owl. I'm like, it's yeah. not an owl. And it's spelled this way. Cause they have a mournful call and they're all just mm-hmm. like those little hooks at the beginning of the semester. They're just like, Oh my God, I never knew that. You know, like that's enough to get them excited. Yeah. It is interesting too, because even if you're not turning people into birders, you're still turning people into someone with an appreciation for nature, an ally down the road. Definitely. And, you know, the the policy, whatever battles to come uh, for conservation and for, for bird populations and for ecology just in general. Right. It's nice to have people that are um, literate. Yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. What does school look like for you now? I feel like we can't. I mean, obviously in a perfect world, you'd be gearing up for your fall semester here. You'd be in the middle of your fall semester. What does school look like now? What does ornithology class look like? Well, you're outdoors a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of, there's still some stuff that you can do even in a COVID, COVID ravaged school year. Yeah. Uh, it, and it's such a great question. And it's, it's totally changed my teaching almost ironically to the point where I could have done what I'm doing this year, five years ago. So I know this is, <laughs> this is going to sound totally out there, but I'm going for it. So, uh, I am teaching this year under a 20 by 20 foot tent and my desks are under the tent. Uh, we're working on heat and sides. Uh, so I have, I have my kids in front of me two days a week and then they're remote for three days. But the days that they're in front of me, they are outside under the tent in a courtyard in our building. And, mm. you know, I'm a firm believer that there's no such thing as bad weather. You know, you yep. just need to be dressed the right way. And it's going to be a totally new experience for a lot of kids. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's ironic. We were in meetings today and I, I said one of my goals is one of my goals anyway, if in a normal year is to not have kids have screens in front of them. I -hmm. said, but even more so this year that I'm taking attendance, you know, we're going to set the goals for the day and then we're going to go bird even more than we did previously because Mm -hmm. it's an opportunity for kids to have a mask break. It's an opportunity to get them outside. All my class numbers, which are typically really big, are now mm-hmm. split in half because we have the hybrid model that we're doing. So if, right. a, if a class was 30 kids, it's now 15. Oh, that's nice, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And it's, um, 
the tough part is going to be, I, I was talking with a colleague about this today. The slowdown part will be, okay, I got to, I have to, to, to wipe down the binoculars between everybody's use. Mm-hmm. And I have to wipe down the field guides between every time we use them. And th- those are going to be the molasses of it. But tenants is done in the tent and then we're out, we're out of there. Like we're birding the yeah. property. Like we have an osprey nest on our campus the, the, and they're still, they're still sticking around. Hopefully that they're going to be here for a couple more weeks. Um, and we, you know, we've have a, a running species list of birds that have just been on our campus for the last seven years with all that data. So, um, yeah. you know, eBird is incredibly helpful to predict what's going to be seen when, but mm-hmm. it's still fun to be able to go outside and say, Hey, you know, we had a rusty blackbird on this date, uh, you know, six years ago, let's keep your eyes out for what that sounds like, you know? So yeah. it's, de- yeah. it's definitely going to slow the process down, but I, and I already emailed all my kids. I, I don't see them for two weeks, but I emailed all my students and said, if there's ever a year in your entire life that you want to take a class like this, this is it because yeah. people just don't want to be inside anymore. Yeah. Are there any strategies that you're employing this year that you think you're going to be able to take forward in a post COVID, hopefully, you know, normal quote unquote school year? Yeah. Um, it's very early. I haven't done it on the ground yeah. with kids yet, but I, if it holds itself and, and goes, you know, if it's an eight out of 10, if I put it on simple terms, I would stay in the tent really like, um, <laughs> just going forward. <laughs> yeah. For real. Yeah. And I know like I've had colleagues say, oh, you know, everybody is like, what if it rains? I'm like, it rains. Like, that's life. (laughs) What if it's cold? I'm like, I get that. Like, I get the cold part. And we're working on heaters that are safe. But I think the tent is a big takeaway. I think the opportunity to to insist on kids, you know, so many schools are, and and again, it's nobody's fault. I understand that kids are going to have to use technology as adults in the world that they're in, but so many schools are so proud of, you know, one kid, one device. And Mm. and my gut reaction is how about one kid and no devices? You know, like it's, it's, I, I want to push for less tech in front of kids while you have them Mm -hmm. because you just, it, it impedes relationship building it has such a negative impact on like the group camaraderie part of it. Yes. It's exhausting. It is too. exhausting. Like it's just exhausting for my kids to be on yeah. a computer for a long time as we're doing remote schooling. Yeah. Yeah. It's soul sucking for them, yeah. you know? So I think post COVID, you know, a tangible thing is the tent, uh, the screen time and more push for getting kids outside. Yeah. Do you think the system that you've put into place is something that any interested high school science teacher can pull off wherever they are. hundred percent. Like absolutely no doubt. I think you have to have a foundation of the core of the love of birds. And the hard part is, is, so I'll give you a good example. One of the things my kids do, uh, my students will do as a kind of a fun intro is we do what's called the the field guide guide, right? So Mm -hmm. I have like a 15 question packet that they are, they fill out as they go through the field guide. And one of the things I give them is there's a little section at the back that says stump me. Right. Mm-hmm. So they get to cover the names of three different birds throughout the course of the time they're doing this. 
they have to ask me what they are. And if I get it wrong, they get bonus points on the assignment. Right. <laughs> and so, and obviously I get plenty wrong. You know, I mean, it's like the, you know, it's the Sibley's Eastern guide and the kids find like some skewer or something that I just am right. not great at or, or like a sheer water <laughs> that I'm like, come on. Right. Yeah. So there'll be plenty I get wrong, but I also get a bunch right. And they, you know, their response to me is like, how do you know that? And I said, I've been doing this for 44 years. <laughs> right. So I, I think the only de detraction to an educator starting a, a core ornithology class is that they do have to have some sort of foundation of birding, even if they took an online class with you guys, with ABA mm -hmm. or like through Cornell or whatever, like just a basic piece. But then if they just have a love of being outside, it can easily be done. And, you know, amazingly, we're only a handful. You know, I, I, the last time I reached out to Cornell, I mean, I want to say there's less than five public schools yeah. that do a full semester course in ornithology. So, yeah, I mean, the more the better. Steve McGuire is a high school ornithology teacher, science teacher in Massachusetts. If there are any teachers out there interested in following his lead, maybe now, maybe later in a less pandemic school setting, uh, send a message over to podcast at aviated.org. I will send it his way. I will put you in contact if that's all right with you, Steve. 100% would love to help. Thanks so much and, uh, and good luck and stay safe out there. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Nate. Here, as promised, a tip for your fall birding. I learned it a long time ago, so long that I don't remember exactly who I heard it from, but I was surprised when I posted it on Twitter how few people had actually heard this little saying, but it's a tip that will make your fall birding better. For warblers in fall, go where chickadees call. What it means. Warblers and other migratory birds will take up with chickadee flocks and migration. The chicks are the locals. They know where the food is. They're always aware of predators, so they're useful partners. And just about anywhere in the AB area, you have at least one species of chickadee. And they all do more or less the same things. So it works, and it rhymes. People like rhymes. For warblers in fall, go where chickadees call. Whenever I am out walking around in the fall, I always listen for chickadees, that's the first thing I do. And, and when I hear them, I stop and look around and I frequently find migratory warblers kind of hanging out with them. In fact, just this past weekend, I was walking in a local park with my family. I heard a Carolina chickadee chattering. I stopped, I pished, and bam, three magnolia warblers pop up. I would have liked a little more diversity. You take what you can get. And that is the other half of the equation, right? Pishing. What is pishing? It is essentially these raspy, percussive sounds you make with your mouth to attract birds. But why do they attract birds? Well, it's because pishing, ideally, is intended to replicate the contact and alarm calls of chickadees. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't, but now you definitely do. So, to make your pishing more effective, what you want to do is to mimic, to the best of your ability, those calls from those chickadees. So don't just stand there and go, psh, 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 psh. you gotta be like a chickadee, right? So for me, it is Carolina chickadee, and that is Also, I have a lot of tough to tip mice around. Those go uh, 
sometimes a little lip burble. If there are any wrens around, Carolina wren is my regular one, so you can go like... And gnat catchers. Basically, I am imitating whatever I am hearing. I'm amplifying the alarm or contact calls of whatever birds are around. So the noises that I'm making will change based on what is going on. So if warblers start calling, I can switch to them, you know, mix it up essentially, you know, read the room. A lot of warblers have very basic chip calls so you can kind of very easily imitate like. So these flocks, if you've ever, you know, paid close attention to them, they're like concentric circles. And the core is that chickadee, titmouse, gnat catcher center and then the ring outside of that core is sort of typically migrating warblers. And then outside of that, you've got even more shy birds like thrushes, maybe some vireos. You have to you have to stick with it, right? You have to get those chickamice wound up. And after a little while, the other things will kind of come in or at least kind of swing by. So be patient. I've had thrushes or shy warblers come in, you know, five, eight, ten minutes after you begin to work on a flock. So long as you don't lose that flock, you're going to be able to see some of these other birds kind of come in and check out what's going on. I don't know if this dynamic works as well in other parts of the world. I know that there are parrots in Europe and Asia, blue and great tits, but I, I don't know to what extent migrating birds kind of mix in with those kind of loose flocks. Uh, Pishing does not work great in the tropics, but I think largely because there are no chickadees or titmice. But the practice of finding the core species of those mixed flocks and imitating that call is one that can bear fruit. But, you know, pishing isn't necessarily the way to do that. The bottom line in the ABA area, though, is to not ignore those chickadees right now. Or if you're in that tiny area in Southern California where they don't have uh, any or very many parrots, whatever species fills that niche, uh, gnat catchers, bush tits, whatever, they're always worth stopping for this time of year. Sometimes they'll respond to a little pishing, sometimes they won't, but you should always try. So for warblers in fall, go where chickadees call. Match your pishing to the sounds that you hear. And if you can throw in a screech owl, you know, at least if you're in the East, that can be a real kicker too. Maybe I'll do another one of these on uh, how to do a screech owl. Actually, people are always impressed by that, but it's not terribly hard. So I hope that helps. When it works, it can feel like magic, feel like a real wicked pisher. And with a little practice, you know, you can be a wicked pisher too. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. It really helps us out, especially in these uncertain times. We have memberships at whatever level works for you. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Jeff Bouton of Lancaster, New York. Not that Jeff Bouton. It's a different Jeff Bouton. Margaret Saunders of Harrisville, New Hampshire, Kate Lowry of Lynchburg, Virginia, Shane Carroll of St. John's, Florida, and Andrea Bempong of Chicago, Illinois, all of whom joined or rejoined the ABA recently. And noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you for that. And welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He has a saying about vagrants in Arizona that he's feeling more than ever right now. For eared Quetzal, make sure you don't stall. Sorry, Jeff. I know that's a sore subject right now. Technical production is by John Lowry, who lives and dies by the saying, if sheer waters you want to see, 
find yourself an upwelling. So true. So true. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who told me once when I was out birding with him, Song Sparrow has a long tail. Savannah's tail is short. Make sure you note the difference when you send your eBird report. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, or on Twitter at ABA. Here's one that has always served me well. To identify occipiters, you'll need something drastic. A cooper's cap is flat and black. A sharpie's cap is plastic. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.